0: And now a look at local and statewide news. Kodiak History Museum has an ongoing mission to archive and care for objects and stories that make up Kodiak's rich past and present. Collections curator Margaret Greudert and executive director Sarah Harrington were guests on this week's Talk of the Rock program to discuss the acquisition and archives process and to talk about what's new at the museum. Kodiak History Museum holds over 2,300 objects and over 1,300 archive collections, everything from local art to centuries-old newspapers to pieces of wood found buried on the beach. Collections curator Margaret Greuter says they will collect anything that tells the history and story of Kodiak.
1: We really see ourselves as caretakers of all of these objects that tell our history. Really, all of the objects that are cared for by the museum are held in public trust, so they aren't actually owned by their museum. They're owned by our community and everyone in Kodiak.
0: With the help of a committee of community members, the museum decides which objects to adopt into the permanent collection. Greidert says they're always trying to represent all of Kodiak's communities, but the basic criteria they're looking for when considering adding a new piece is, does it help to tell Kodiak's story in some
1: way? Really, it's mostly just saying, is it related to the people work and life of Kodiak?
0: Preserving those objects for years to come involves a lot of meticulous record-keeping. Greudert documents everything she can find about the newly acquired photograph or letter or artifact to provide context for researchers and future generations. And while cataloging is a never-ending process, Executive Director Sarah Harrington says it's important to make Kodiak's history accessible to everyone. We're really lucky in a lot of ways in that, um, you know, our history here is something we're still really engaged with as a community. And we still have access to a lot of elders who have intimate knowledge and experience with artifacts or photographs in the collection and things like that. But we're kind of moving into a new era where we're losing a lot of those connections.
1: Most of my job is creating systems so that we are able to preserve this information and retrieve it for generations to come. And so, you know, how, how do we capture those stories and, and save them in a sustainable way? And how do I search for those stories 60 years later?
0: To that end, Grider is also working on an archives access project to get the museum's vast collection of photographs and history
1: accessible and easily searchable online. We first did an inventory of every single archive collection we have and we're currently getting just a baseline inventory in our database so that if anyone is interested, they're like, hey, do you have any information on the old agricultural experiment station? I'm able to just kind of search our database really quickly and give them an answer. In case you weren't aware, the
0: Agricultural Experiment Station was an early 1900s data gathering site located right where KMXT currently sits on Signal Hill. If archiving Kodiak's history sounds interesting to you, the museum is looking for volunteers to help with the archive's access project. Visit KodiakHistoryMuseum.org or call 907-486-5920. You can listen to our full Talk of the Rock interview with Greidert and Harrington on our website, KMXT.org. Reporting in Kodiak, I'm Kavitha George. Pebble Partnership leaned on Governor Mike Dunleavy for help last summer, pleading that the survival of their proposed gold mine was at risk, and the governor took up the cause. That's one of the episodes revealed in emails Pebble sent to the governor's office obtained through a public records request. The documents also show that a letter from mine opponents made a big impression on a potential Pebble investor. Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin has this peek behind the scenes of one of Alaska's most controversial projects.
2: Publicly, Pebble CEO Tom Collier always radiates confidence about the proposed mine and about the viability of the company, even when partner after partner has backed out. At a congressional hearing last year, Collier scoffed at the notion his project isn't financially sound.
3: So if you believe it's not financially viable, let's all go home. Um, But the project is financially viable. We've invested um, almost a billion dollars in this project to get it where it is now. And uh, we're going to be able to build it, and it's going to make money as we go forward.
2: But in a July 17 email to the governor's office, Collier struck a less confident note. Before we get to that, here's a quick status report. Pebble has applied for a federal wetlands permit, and a ruling is expected this fall. If the permit is granted, Pebble would need state permits. And it's clear from its financial reports, Pebble is going to need a lot more money to keep going. Back in July, Pebble was pinning its hopes on a Canadian firm called Wheaton Precious Metals for a substantial investment. Wheaton executives would visit Alaska later that month, and Collier wanted to show them his project had the governor's support. The Pebble CEO planned a dinner for the potential investors at his Anchorage home, prepared by a private chef. A senior advisor to Dunleavy was coming, but Collier felt it wasn't enough. Collier emailed Dunleavy advisor Brett Huber, pleading for the governor to change his out-of-state travel plans. The governor had to meet the Wheaton delegation, Collier wrote. A phone call wouldn't do it. I would not make this request unless I thought it was absolutely critically essential, Collier said in his July 17 email. This currently is our best option for survival.
4: It was really interesting to see him admit it.
2: Taryn Kikoheimer is an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, one of the groups fighting the Pebble mine. She saw a copy of the Pebble emails late last year. CNN obtained them from the governor's office first, and the network let her read them. Heimer was struck by Pebble's tone, that its usual swagger was gone.
4: Seeing that come through differently, uh, you know, secretly to the governor really validated what we see when when they provide quarterly statements of their financials. What's really evident is that they desperately need money.
2: Pebble declined an interview request for this story. Spokesman Mike Heatwall says the company is on firmer financial footing than it was in July after raising $20 million by selling stock. Heimer says she was amazed to see how Pebble leaned on the governor for help attracting investment dollars from Wheaton
4: asking the governor to 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 show for them right you know he's he's giving it's extraordinary the governor is giving a private investor a sales pitch on behalf of a foreign mining corporation
2: The governor's office also declined an interview request, and it refused to say whether Dunleavy complied with Pebble's request to meet the Wheaton team. But he did write a letter to Wheaton encouraging the company to invest, and the emails reveal the letter was written almost entirely by Pebble. The records from the governor's office also show what happened right after the Wheaton team visited Alaska. Heimer's group and other mine opponents wrote Wheaton a 12-page letter basically warning that if you invest in Pebble, you'll face never-ending opposition. The message landed like a bomb. Within minutes of receiving it, Wheaton CEO Randy Smallwood sent a terse email to the chief executive of Pebble's parent company. Wow, things don't stay very secret around our visit, Smallwood wrote. Pretty sure a similar package will have been delivered to our directors. Not good. Actually, Heimer says, mine opponents got lucky. They'd heard a mining investment company might be interested in Pebble, so they sent letters to about half a dozen firms, including Wheaton.
4: We papered a bunch of them. I never heard back from anybody.
2: And she says she didn't send the letter to Wheaton's board of directors, as Smallwood feared. But now Heimer says she knows what to do if she sends a similar letter in the future.
4: Hearing what Mr. Smallwood said about that, I will absolutely be sending it to every single uh, senior executive and board director.
2: Wheaton has not invested in Pebble, and the company isn't saying if it's still considering it. Reporting from Washington, I'm Liz Ruskin.
0: The organization opposing the recall campaign against Governor Mike Dunleavy has told its lawyers to withdraw its appeal of the recall. Stantall with Mike said in a statement that, "quote The public is better served by devoting resources to educating the public why this recall is unjustified and a waste of public resources." End quote. The group also said it's clear the Alaska Supreme Court is determined to let the recall effort go forward. Stand with Mike is concerned about Chief Justice Joel Bolger's ability to be impartial in the case. The group says the justice, quote, "...directly participated in the events that gave rise to one of the recall charges." A clerk for the court said she told lawyers in a conference call on Friday that she wasn't aware that Bolger would recuse himself and that if anyone had a concern, they should file a motion. Dunleavy responded to the Stand Tall with Mike's announcement while while talking with Alaska Public Media's Lori Townsend on Talk of Alaska. He said recently he heard rumblings about the decision.
3: The belief was that uh, it was pointless to continue with the legal approach to this. And uh, now what would
5: be the recourse? I mean, what what would they propose to do if you can't go to the courts?
3: That the courts are going to put this on the ballot and then we have a
4: campaign.
0: Recall Dunleavy campaign manager Claire Pywell says Dantol with Mike's statement was a disappointing attack on the Supreme Court.
4: And it shows they haven't learned their lesson. They still are showing this lack of respect for other branches of government, and they're continuing to attack the judicial branch.
0: Another of the four grounds for recall alleges that Dunleavy violated the separation of powers between the executive and judicial branches by saying that he was vetoing court funding because of court rulings upholding Medicaid funding of abortions. A spokesperson for the Department of Law said the state will continue its appeal, seeking to block the recall from moving forward. It believes the division's decision and an opinion by the state's attorney general were correct and that the issues need to be addressed by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled last week that the recall campaign can start gathering signatures. It will require more than 71000 to put the recall on the ballot. In her annual address to a joint session of the legislature on Tuesday, U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski told lawmakers that the state should do more to help
1: Alaskans get real ID. This is going to take state resources in order to get out to these communities. And in fairness, it's not something that we can just pass the plate and and ask for it to be funded. We've just got to put the resources towards it so that people can can move. Rural lawmakers have said the state should put
0: more money toward helping residents get the federally required IDs by the October deadline. State officials asked in December for donations to bring state workers to villages to make real IDs, but the program has been affected by technical problems. In a press conference after the speech, Murkowski told reporters she's concerned about President Donald Trump directing money from military procurement and the National Guard to build the wall along the border with Mexico. She
1: says Congress controls the federal purse strings under the U.S. Constitution. We, as the, as the congressional branch, have our powers under Article 1, and we will exercise them. Murkowski said in the speech that the Trump impeachment trial
0: may have been the most deeply partisan experience of her career. She was asked by a reporter whether she sees parallels with the recall campaign against Governor Mike Dunleavy. Murkowski says she sees
1: Alaska as less partisan than Washington, D.C., I mean, it seems to me that Alaskans are just so, so much more practical and pragmatic about what, what it is that we are dealing with that really matters. And, and, and I, I hope that we're able to stay that way. I hope that we don't let this divide us. Murkowski also said federal highway funding
0: legislation will be useful as the state plans for the future of the Alaska Marine Highway System. Imagine a middle school band class. Rows of fidgety students, shiny brass instruments, reams of sheet music with neatly printed notes. But what if, instead of reading quarter notes and triplets and three-part harmonies off of a page, you played music based on a drawing? KCAW's Ari Snyder reports.
6: For the most part, it looks like a normal day in the Blatchley middle school band class. Students playing all sorts of instruments, a conductor up front, but today they're not following sheet music, not really. Instead, they're experimenting with a technique called sound painting.
7: So right now we're doing sound painting, which is actually free composing without talking.
6: Leading the class is visiting artist Ed Littlefield, a Clinkett musician and graduate of the Sitka School District who currently lives in Seattle.
7: So instantaneous, I direct or whoever directs the band and it becomes the piece of the minute and it's never gonna be the same ever again.
6: Littlefield treats the orchestra like a color wheel, Using hand gestures like a brush to build a piece of music in real time, he points to an individual horn player to get things started using the gesture for melody. Then another motion to cut it off before bringing in a whole group of horns. Littlefield is something of a hometown hero in Sitka, having taken his skills in clinket music and jazz to orchestras, symphonies, and other groups throughout Alaska and the Pacific Northwest. He's a frequent performer at Jazz Fest and a longtime instructor at the Sitka Fine Arts Camp. This particular project is a week-long residency, part of a partnership between the school district, University of Alaska Southeast, and the Fine Arts Camp. But the students aren't just playing whatever notes they want to when Littlefield points his invisible paintbrush at them. He's given them a melody to start off with.
7: Kind of using one of the Tlingit lullabies, called uh called
6: as a kind of a jumping-off point. Drew Larson, the Blatchley music teacher whose class Littlefield is teaching today, says delving into visual composition has helped broaden the students' musical understanding. Because they get to explore some new sounds they haven't been able to think of as music before. Larson also says he's happy to turn his class over to a visiting artist like Littlefield to help introduce his students to new ideas. Seeing the students dig in and do something they haven't done before and gain from the experience of the person in front of them is always exciting. Anytime that's an option, I I jump at that opportunity.
7: You need to have this. What's on top? Adjectives. What's on bottom? Emotions. What I want you to do is I would love it.
6: For the next activity, they switch gears, jumping into graphic composition. Each Um, student has a piece of paper with four adjectives written on it, happy, ragged, lonely, soft, For example, their task is to make a drawing based on each word.
7: And essentially every piece of music is a visual score, but we're turning it into graphic musical scores, which is a shape or patterns or just colors or things that are representative of music. We ready? Yeah?. <sighs> <sighs>
6: The students set down their instruments and scattered themselves around the band room, more or less abiding by the instructions to work quietly. A quick survey of their drawings revealed a range of artistic techniques, from stick figures to abstract shapes. Eventually, the students will become conductors themselves, leading the class in an original piece of music based on their drawings. It's unconventional and puts a lot of responsibility on the students, but Littlefield says that's pretty much the point.
7: Because I really find that these visual scores are very empowering for students of all abilities because essentially you just have to make a mark on a page and then that mark becomes music and then that is your piece of music.
6: And it's also a drawing, a piece of music you could be proud to hang up on the fridge. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Ari Snyder. Today's
5: KMXT Local News is brought to you in part by Discover Kodiak, a one-stop source for visitor information on Kodiak and other destinations around the state. On the web at kodiak.org and at the Visitor Center in the Ferry Terminal Building at 100 Marine Way, 486-4782. This is Alaska Fish Radio. I'm Lamie Welch. Alaska's hatchery program is highlighted for the Board of Fish. More after this.
3: Integrated Marine Systems is the leader in marine refrigeration in Alaska. Visit imspacific.com.
5: Salmon that get their start in Alaska hatcheries enhance the wild runs and the program will again be featured during the Board of Fisheries final meeting next month in Anchorage. A hatchery committee was formed last year to better inform the board on operations and production.
3: Definitely it's to educate themselves on the hatchery program and if Hard decisions have to be made about allocation or about where fish can be released or harvested. It's to their benefit to understand the program and the science
5: behind it. Steve Reifenstuhl is manager of the Northern Southeast Regional Aquaculture Association. On March 6th, a 12-member science panel will present two invited board members and the hatchery committee, which will meet the following day. Most of the presentation will be from state managers on regulations and oversight and what the hatcheries produce each year.
3: For the coastal communities, the hatchery program is a lifesaver to many of the people that fish for a living because it contributes about 25% of the salmon harvest.
5: Critics of the hatchery program claim that too many tiny salmon are released each year and pose threats to the purity and health of wild stocks. The panel will update research on pink and chum salmon underway since 2013 that aims to answer those questions. The study runs through 2024.
3: We are looking at two full life cycles of chum salmon, and their life cycle is roughly five, six years. We're also doing two full life cycles of pink salmon, which just ended this past year.
5: You can submit questions to the Fish Board through Friday, February 21st. Tune in online to both the March 6th presentation and the Alaska Hatchery Committee meeting on March 7th. Find links at alaskafishradio.com. Fish Radio is also brought to you by Ocean Beauty Seafoods. In Kodiak, I'm Lainey Welch. Fish Radio is supported in part by Joy Crafts, specializing in marine safety equipment. U.S. Coast Guard approved AMC instruction for commercial fishing vessel safety procedures and drills, serving Kodiak for over 25 years. 486-6293 at 445 Shahafka Circle.
4: This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements.
0: Welcome to this noon edition of the Island Messenger. It's 32 degrees and fair in Kodiak right now. This afternoon expect some snow mainly after 4 p.m., highs near 37 degrees and southwest winds 10 to 15 miles per hour becoming south. Winds could gust as high as 30 miles per hour. There's a 90% chance of precipitation, but little to no snow accumulation is expected. Tonight some more snow before 10 p.m., rain between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m., then more snow likely into the early morning. Lows around 32 degrees and southeast winds 15 to 20 miles per hour, increasing to 25 to 30 miles per hour a 100 percent chance of precipitation less than half an inch of snow accumulation possible looking at the marine forecast for today from marmont island to sickenac there's a gale warning tonight and thursday today south winds of 30 knots with seas at 12 feet and rain and tonight south winds of 40 knots becoming southwest 30 knots after midnight seas at 15 feet with rain Chiniac bay has a small craft advisory tonight today south winds of 20 knots with seas at two feet building to four feet in the afternoon with snow Tonight, southeast winds of 30 knots becoming south 20 knots after midnight. Seas at 10 feet subsiding to 3 feet after midnight with rain and snow. Marmot Bay has a small craft advisory tonight. Today, southwest winds of 20 knots with seas at 4 feet and snow. Tonight, southeast winds of 30 knots becoming south 20 knots after midnight, seas at 13 feet, subsiding to 4 feet after midnight, snow and rain. Shelikov Strait, a small craft advisory through tonight. Today, southwest winds of 30 knots becoming southeast 20 knots in the afternoon, seas at 7 feet, subsiding to 4 feet in the afternoon with snow. And tonight in Shelikov Strait, southeast winds of 30 knots with seas at 9 feet, expect rain and snow. Today's February 19th, sunrise this morning was at 8.31am, sunset tonight will be at 6.18pm for 9 hours and 47 minutes of daylight, which is 4 minutes 53 seconds more than we got yesterday. The record high on this day was 45 degrees in 1945, the record low was 0 degrees in 1975. Looking at our tides for today, low tide for Kodiak will be out at 6 p.m., 0.09 feet. High tide will be in at 12.39 a.m., 6.63 feet. Over on the west side, low tide will be at 6.26 p.m., 0.66 feet. High tide will be at 12.51 a.m., 12.74 feet. Quick look at our community announcements for today. Today at the public library at 3 p.m. is Lego Fun. It's a drop-in program for youth and adults. Children under 10 must be accompanied by an adult. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., it's Family Discovery Storytime for children ages 3 to 8 and their families. At 2 p.m. tomorrow at the library is the monthly Ancestry Workshop. This workshop is for those interested in learning family history and learning how to do online genealogical research. Also on February uh, 20th, that's tomorrow, at 3.30 p.m. is After School Science. Stop by the craft room to participate in fun and surprising science. Again, children under 10 must be accompanied by an adult. The Alaska Aerospace Corporation will be conducting rocket launch operations at Narrow Cape this month. Launch windows will be from 11.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. The following restrictions, coordinated with the Alaska Department of Transportation and Public Facilities and the Alaska Department of Natural Resources, will be enforced to ensure public safety. On launch day, road restrictions will include the Pasag Shack Road, blocked on launch day immediately east of Mile 13. At the entrance to the Pacific Spaceport Complex, the Pasag Roadblock will be manned prior to the opening of the launch window. It'll initially function as a checkpoint for all traffic authorized to proceed past the roadblock. All non-launch associated vehicles and personnel not directly associated with the launch will be cleared from the area beyond the Pasag Roadblock approximately three hours prior to the launch to ensure public safety. There will be an electronic sign in Bell Slat on the Chiniac Highway with information regarding road closures at PSAA. If you have questions pertaining to the road closures, you can call Paul Pena at, uh, he's the ground safety officer at 907-942-4485 or Robert Green, the spaceport manager, 907-229-2007. And that's all I have for you for today.
4: Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 1220, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.